Hi, Jimmy. How are you? Hi, Katarina. I'm well, thank you. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. We'll wait a few minutes until we start. There we go. Having a good weekend. Hi, Victoria. How are you? Hey, good morning, Katarina. Good morning, Jamie. Hi, Victoria. Um, how are you? Happy. Glad to be here. How are oh, you both? I'm well, thank you. Good, good. Thank you. We had a lot of guest speakers last week, <laughs> so a every, lot to discuss. Every time we have uh, a weekly recap, I always go, wow, how much ground have we covered in a week? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Next week will be less busy, gladly. It, uh, we'll have one room a day, and let's see. I. Um, I always try to, since it's kind of scheduled ahead of time for a while, to get um, confirmations again from the speakers. If I don't get them like on the day before, I'll, I'll cancel the room. But let's see, maybe I'm too, <laughs> I'm too worried always that, um, that people won't show up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the room is just about, you know, the person and their research. So if they don't show up, it's kind of, you know. Yeah. The momentum you've picked up here is phenomenal, Katarina. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, let me pin the first link. And here we go. Um... So, yeah, this was an exciting week. As I said, uh, we, did, we covered a lot of topics and um, learned a lot of new things uh, from editing gene expression very precisely um, to quantum physics, like nuclear physics. Um, so... BCI, novel BCI technology, uh, it was really amazing. And um, the first speaker we had on Monday was like a wonderful start. She was an amazing uh, public, or she is an amazing public speaker. Um, so let's uh, talk about her first. It's um, Dr. 
Shiri Levy. She's at um, she's at the University of Washington, um, and she is a researcher there. And she was also back um, in until um, two thousand. Uh, a surgeon in combat engineering in Israel. So um, yeah, she she has a kind of a diverse background in um, in life and in from the work perspective. So she used to um, design and implement combat ready training courses for soldiers uh, for intensive exercise and was awarded for the best soldier and best instructor by the president of Israel. So, yeah, <laughs> she, she was a really great, um, amazing um, person in the Israel Defense Forces. And now she's a researcher. Um, and um, yeah, her talk was about um, uh, you, you can see the post, um, it should be open access. So <clears throat> she developed, or she and her colleagues developed um, process in very precisely um, changing gene expression of um, precise um, genetic codes. And um, she did that with four, um, genetic regions and also additionally while um, doing this she also revealed um, inhibitory uh, function uh, of the Tata box um, that is actually in a quite distal pr uh, promoter region of these um, gene uh, codes um, that she tried to implant. So, what they did, they did, um, they generated a computer designed PRC2 inhibitor that fusions with um, DCAS9. Um, and um, by doing that, they could, as I said, very precisely change um, gene expression of, um, of precise locus uh, using gRNA. And they did that with these four different genes, TBX18, P16, CDX2, and uh, GATA3. And this resulted in the um, precise um, H3K27ME3 and EZH2 reduction of gene activation and functional outcomes of um, in the cell cycle and the differentiation of the cells so um yeah so they identified this or they they computer generated and designed this protein this eb eed binder and they named it eb that basically um can very precisely in combination with dcas9 um, manipulate um, gene expression levels of precise loci and the cool thing about it is that with this you don't change the genetic code itself and additionally you can um 
you can design it in a way that you need to take a drug, a starter drug, basically, in order to <clears throat> to activate this designed protein. And this whole um, cascade of um, of genetic function, of gene expression function, and when you stop taking that medication, this um, this activation of this gene expression function will also stop. So you not only have um, that way a very precise way to control specific gene loci, so um, so very specific genes, but also you have you can become quite precise in the time uh, because you can you can link it to an activated drug like this. So this is um, really um, great progress for precise um, manipulation, let's say, um, for novel cancer drug treatments and other kind of gene therapies that don't um, change the genetic code. And um, another interesting or insight that she gained through her research was that you have um, this inheritance of epigenetic mechanisms that she showed in this um, in the stem cell when they go when they proliferate um, up um, so you she saw this activation um, of these um, genes uh, during very specific days on day three um, for example and that this function was inherited. Um, so I, it's a, it's a also additionally quite interesting basic science um, uh, insight that she gained during this designing of this method, and then um, yeah, and I think she explained it really well how epigenetic works. So epigenetics, just to quote her, uh, if you imagine. Um, all the different cells you have, liver cells, skin cells, and so on, they have all the same genetic codes in them, but they look very different and they have very different functions. Um, and this is thanks to the epigenome. So um, how the genes are being controlled to, um, to turn them into different cell types and with different functions. Uh, doing different jobs basically in the body so I don't know if you have anything to add I think this is just to give you an overview of what the research was about if you want to have a deep dive please listen to the replay or go to the paper yeah go ahead Serena yeah I thought there were two really cool things about it the um, the de novo design protein that was for one because that was completely computationally designed and I always like hearing really good applications for these design proteins. Um, but I remember at one point the room got uh, completely locked on to the you know, 3D implications of this distal uh, site, 500 base pairs, and what that might say for the, you know, the geometry of the, of the chromatin in that, in that case. She didn't have answers. I guess that's not what was, was anything that she was looking at, but it was interesting to see just how the room kind of locked on, I, um, but it'd be interesting to, to hear more about 3D structure of chromatin and when 
when we're, you know, manipulating expression like this. Um, it's kind of fascinating. But I actually missed the the part that um, what was it? The fox, foxo something? The the drug that it was activating? I missed the. Fox one. Yeah, yeah, the fox. I missed it there. Um, so I'm I'm glad you you went over that, Katarina, because um, I didn't know they also had that additional level of control. Did that activate the designed protein, or did, was that activating CASP, or what was it? Do you know that it's a binding mode? Yeah, so when they when they put this construct basically uh, into the cells, you are very it's 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 became it became quite common um, now that you basically link this um, you kind of have to express this design protein, right? And in order to do that, you can link it to um, uh, being activated by uh, antibiotic, for example. And um, that's what they did here. It's, it's becoming relatively common to do that, to have this additional control. Um, yeah, but um, like in animals, it, it, it's, it's relatively common now. So you see a lot of uh, papers where, where that's the case. I think David Sinclair and others also use that. So you have like this regulation that you can stop basically the activity because at some point, you know, especially during development, which is kind of here, right? When you mm, mm, turn stem cells into something like she did here, you, you can, mm, this is kind of a time precise um, mechanism that has to stop then at some point. So, um, yeah, by using that, you kind of, when you stop taking the drug, the gene expression of that design protein stops and then the function stops. Didn't this have the kind of potential to take, uh, like if someone was having cancer in a certain part of the body and this is the potential to actually stop those cells from replicating or something. I'm not misremembering. Like the, the potential of this was, was huge of what yeah, it could do. It's huge. And um but it, uh, the Fox G one is the next paper. I'm not sure if mm -hmm. you're the right one. The pure proliferation in the um, progenitor cells of the human forebrain. That was the next speaker, um, but still, she also looked at uh, more at differentiation mechanisms than proliferation. Uh, but yes, you can basically with this um, target then um, cancer cells, but also other um, gene loci and um, and stop this or activate this. Uh, different kinds of gene expression mechanisms. So, yeah, I think you're thinking about the next, the next paper <laughs> about the proliferation because that was really uh, we we can go there now if you want. But the Tata box, what Serena said, I wanted to mention that was really interesting. 
it was shortly just mentioned the G4 uh, formation um, in this paper, but yeah, she didn't really go into that. Um, I guess it's not that trivial to look at these formations in the living cells yet. There, so you have uh, for these uh, 3D formation for specific ones, you they in cancer. Uh, there have been developed um, drugs that target target these specific formations, and then you have antibodies that target um, very specific formation, mostly G4, and now also the I motif, um, but not all formations and not in like a living. It's still hard to do it in a living tissue without fixing it and sometimes fixing it just you know uh, disrupts these kind of formations so um yeah but but it would be really interesting to look into that i agree oh you mentioned the eye motif um could you briefly tell us what that is and you had a hypothesis paper about that what was the right oh sorry Didn't yeah you? yeah i ha i had um so basically what this is you have um you have i motif and g4 so you have specific um you have specific uh um gene sequences that um that basically form this um this t or cross structures um and they have been shown uh, in different, um, like not in vivo. So what they basically do to find out these, if these formations are possible is to um, uh, change pH, change different types of factors to the DNA and see what the DNA does, like um, how it changes. But usually it's not um it's not something that people have shown in the living cell um however the g4 formation um and also the imoti formation had been uh shown then in vivo in you know in like these cancer cells that you keep in the um, in the lab and um the interesting thing about that was that um, different iron concentrations such as magnesium NK plus um, uh, change uh, or affect this um, I motif formations and um, and also indirectly through these I motif formations uh, G4 formations can also be um, manipulated. Um, the the interesting thing about that is that these um, iron concentration fluctuate quite a lot um, during synaptic plasticity, long-term memory formation, you know, longer excitability changes, even in shorter ones. Um, you have this flux of iron concentrations and uh, NMDA receptors need also a higher magnesium um, to unblock so and those are highly involved in uh, in long-term memory formation so that's why I wrote this um, article that maybe especially this IMOTIF formations 
uh, play a role in synaptic plasticity uh, for gene expression changes. So, yeah, yeah, I, I wrote a hypothesis paper about it. I applied for grants for this it was a few years ago, and I never really got the grant. Uh, so I just wrote this, and then I thought somebody else can do it. <laughs> and, they, and they did. Yeah, yeah, that, that was interesting, especially the G4. And now also there's some MLT work in vivo now. So yeah, so that's, that's interesting. I, so I got a lot of invitations because of this hypothesis paper to speak in conferences. So that's what came out of it, basically. <laughs> quite exciting when you see a paper that you wrote something about actually saw some activity later on, eh? And it's, you know, still paying off down the line, even if it's not in ways you expected. Oh, yeah, I don't, you know, I, if somebody else, I'm just glad, I'm just curious to see if it's true or not, who then in the end does it, you know, doesn't really matter in the end, I guess. Um, so... I'm just glad that people work on it because, as I said, um, I think before uh, the cancer drugs are way more evolved. They always had more money. They have very, very specific cancer drugs that target these functions because uh, this was always hypothesized that these are regulatory mechanisms in cancer. So they are pretty quick in developing these very specific drugs that target these and uh, I always think um, as long as it's a small molecule, we could also use them in severe um, mental health or, you know, brain development and so on, um, disordered, and probably not even for, you know, you wouldn't need to take it chronically. Um, so, yeah. So that's my hope. If I would, you know, get the money I applied for. That was my idea a bunch of years ago to just screen with, you know, computational tools through all the cancer drugs and and screen through all the gene expression data that's uh, available at NIH and, um, and like, um, pair them with novel cancer drugs and then try those treatments out. But um, let's see, hopefully somebody will do that at some point. To everybody listening here, this is an example of a pure scientific mind here with Katerina. The desire to have growth and betterment for everybody and for ideas to come together to make everything better for everyone. So please remember that and subscribe and listen to all of these replays because they're all worth listening to. That's my take here. Well, it is quite commendable that in the, in the face of, you know, such competitive funding when when a project doesn't get funded, that you at least had the energy and um, resolve to put it into a hypothesis paper so others could pick up. That is quite commendable. So great. Oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> it wasn't, I don't know.
you know, I do silly things out of frustration. I mean, when, whenever yeah. I got grants denied, I, I was just pissed and just moved on to something else. <laughs> I can't imagine having enough um, motivation to actually put it into a hypothesis, but that was good. <laughs> Hats off. Those, but, um, Definitely remarkable. Research gate, because they kind of got annoyed with me um, this these there are not too many hypothesis paper places and um, you can publish for free but they don't but they want you to actually pay for the open access but i said yeah i didn't even get the grant for this you know i don't care. <laughs> like i want to publish so people <laughs> you know i'm not paying a few thousand dollars to publish this without the grant so so i just ended up putting them into, into, you know, bio archive, whatever, and then, and then put it on research gates. And I had a few, but for those, I didn't put as much, like I wrote it together. It's a lot. It's not condensed enough, I guess, for people to, well, it has a bunch of reads, but like the, the immune system, neurosystem, uh, co-evolution and why that uh, would help us to find new uh, new drugs and treatments. It's so long that paper, it has all this stuff, like it has the everything that's, you know, immune system and neural system um, uh, discussed there and how to screen for it and all this stuff. And the hypothesis is that you would ideally in the future do RNA sequencing on people and uh, you would recognize uh, like ideally with buccal swab like um, but this was years ago where I did that and then and then you would basically recognize okay in that person at some point you should stop the communication between the immune system and the neural system to basically prevent things like Parkinson and dementia and ALS and so on, because from my idea, it's just um, that those two systems keep um, keep um, inflammating each other and don't stop. And if you at some point would just <clears throat> take a pause, you you could probably at different time points in life prevent maybe those disorders. But anyways, it's off topic. I'm sorry. I uh, let's. <laughs> let's go to the next one um so um next we had uh carl ernst he uh was here and gave also a really interesting um uh, presentation he's an associate professor uh, in canada at the uh, psychiatric genetics at the mcgill university and he talked about this Fox G1 and the dosage basically of Fox G1 expression tunes the cell proliferation dynamics in the human forebrain um, progenitor cells. So um, basically, if you have too much of the Fox G1, it's not good. And if you have too little, uh, like then you basically get cancer and quite aggressive brain cancer. If you have too little, you get quite um, 
um, develop like quite um, significant developmental um, uh, problems. So um, I think it was really interesting how he, in general, how he, he approaches um, the studies. He works really closely with his patients and um, they basically um, get um, cells from the patients and grow them like stem cells from the patients grow them and um and look at the um, uh, ipscs derived um forebrain neural progenitor cells of the patients and basically check uh what what is going wrong um so they um th uh, as i said they they had the cells from the patients and then they saw um, that basically mostly pathogenic mutation in the FOXG1 um, affected the cell proliferation in the human brain and that basically led to the, the, the developmental um, issues in the patients. And uh, with that, you can basically in the future, hopefully with that approach, um, you can hopefully in the future prevent um, uh, disabilities. Like this is a rare disease um, research, but um, yeah, this shows how also rare disease research can turn into a really broad, applicable, beneficial um, um, uh, treatment at some point or probably different um, disorders too. So um, yeah, I don't know if anyone wants to add to this. Um, he was a remarkable man when he was up talking because not only was he doing this incredible work, but he was actually driven by a great deal of compassion as he'd been working with uh, like handicapped children um, earlier in life. And he was even making songs for children and things like that. He was, he was driven by um, a quite a, a, a fantastic drive. And um, didn't he say that the, the Fox G1 was um, kind of like, interesting, because it seemed to be so powerful, that the body seemed to um, almost be keyed up to to shut it down as quickly as possible, because its effects on the brain were were that powerful that even exposure for a short period of time was causing certain dramatic changes. So it was like a, a, a some kind of super thing. What was it? Yeah. Mm, yeah. So yeah, if you, if you express too much, if it's been activated too much, you can turn into a very aggressive brain cancer. Yeah. And um, if you, yeah, if you have too little, you basically don't have enough brain cells. And then you have basically a too small of a brain. So yeah, it is quite powerful. And, um, and it has a very, very um, important regulatory um, mechanism, especially in the brain. Um, yep. And you had and he had said that um, the research he's done at the moment um, still leaves a lot to 
find out in the future, right? Because finding the right cases and being able to do the right kind of tests is um, difficult and long and time consuming. So there's still a lot to uncover there, but the fact that he was even uncovering what he did was some quite big steps for potentially other people in the future too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so um, the exact function now, um, he's working on that, like how it changes um, proliferation um, and um, exactly, and what did the exact, what exactly in the cells happen. But um, yeah, this was one really big step. And also he wants to basically um, have um, tissue available in the future that's easier to collect. Mm, so it's very similar to the cancer, the problematic of um, collecting tissue and uh, making it cheaper, basically the whole process. Uh, like in the cancer research we talked about later in the week. Yeah. I like hearing stories of pursuits of rare diseases that uncover much more general general things. I, I at least ha it, it used to be, I'm not so sure whether that's still a factor, but I imagine it is. The pharmaceutical companies would be less interested in rare diseases because of the bottom line and you know the market size and things. But um, I, 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 I always like hearing, because often when you know an investigator goes after a rare disease, well, I don't know how often, but you know that it's not uncommon that there's, there's a personal motivation and there's some definite passion behind the work. And um, when we uncover things that are more broadly applicable, that's a, it's a real win. Yeah, and the funny thing is he also never wanted to actually go to science. Like, <laughs> um, like it was not his main career goal. And then he just wanted to solve, you know, get um, different answers when he was the university and then the professor told me told him okay then you have to go to neuroscience neurodevelopmental science and that's what he did and it, it was interesting <laughs> definitely to whoever still tempted to go and listen to the replays at the absolute least hearing the backstories of these people is remarkable enough to give a few minutes of your day towards listening to and the rest will just follow your curiosity. It'll just take you there. The how they got there is always fascinating, always. And then we had um, Dr. Gilbert Gallado here. He's assistant professor of neurology at the Department of Neurology in Washington University School of Medicine. And um, he works a lot with um, Alzheimer's disease, neurodegenerative diseases that are um, in alpha-synuclein and tau uh, related. And um, yeah, I pinned the paper here to the room uh, where he basically um, talked about 
Um, he, I could also put the present. If you want to have the presentation again, uh, please contact me. I can send you the link. It was a really pretty presentation about neuroglia. You would have loved it, Serena. I think you were not there, were you? I'm I know. Sure. I'm, I'm missing all these good ones. It's terrible. <laughs> uh he started his uh let me let me go and get oh them. wait i think at least one of them he had an astrocyte and and uh, microglia story and then and he, there was a network about them that was less appreciated normally it was thought is this that that talk yeah let me, he had a very pretty presentation about mm -hmm. uh, the glia history so there, there you go. The glue that holds the, holds the proper nervous parts, uh, like uh, he went a little bit um, into history there when the first research was done on glia. And then he went into um, a little bit of the research he had done before uh, about the um, MST FOXO signaling pathway how it mediates oxidative stress and if it's phosphorylated in um, these SODTG mice um, uh, that have this motor neuron degeneration. So he went into uh, that. Um, so his presentation was really good because he gave us a little bit of insight on the um, path to this paper basically um then alpha, he talked about alpha adductin um atpas complex um, how it's associated also not just um with um these um accumulations but also with hypertension and uh, that it's pr predominantly expressed in primary astrocytes, especially in the spinal cord. And so he proposed back then a mechanism for motor neurodegeneration in ALS. And then he started his research in astrocytes and microglia, how they um, impact um, motor neuron degeneration. And um, further on, then he showed um, work of knockout mice with this alpha NKA um, mouse model work he did before. And then he came into the Alzheimer's disease. So he, he gave a really good overview of his research a little bit in general. Um, and um, how alpha-2 NK is, is upregulated in um, Alzheimer's and, and tautopathy mouse model and um, how he did a pharmacological inhibition um, of, of this mechanism and he could prevent um, these tau-regulated pathologies and it's actually a drug that um, is being used for um, for uh, hypertension or cardiovascular related disease. So this was basically 
he said what uh, most people are interested in, like the science news world, because he used a drug that's already FDA approved to basically prevent and also uh, downregulate um, the, um, the severity of Alzheimer's disease with this drug. Um, yeah, I think it was a really great talk um, because it he really made an effort to give us like a, a broader of, overview and um, of the different mechanisms he looked into. So it was really good. Uh, anything does anyone want to add to this? If not, we'll move on to Bruce Hansen, Dr. Bruce Hansen. He is a professor of um, psychology and neuroscience um, at um, the University of um, um, at the Colgate University. I'm sorry. <laughs> And um, yeah, his work, let me see, I have to put the link up. Sorry, I have to find the right link. It was a lot of stuff. So his work was really interesting, more in um, network systems, uh, neuroscience, um, field and in humans there's the right um there's the right paper um so he is interested in um everyday visual experiences um and uh how the 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 operating or how these senses like especially the visual system senses are um, computed and processed um, in humans and he used um, this um, diff this um, imaging um, system um, DETI uh, dynamic electrodes to image mapping um, his presentation was also really really good um, I don't know where I have the link. Oh, should should I put the presentation up or the paper? What do you guys think? We could do the presentation too. Yeah. I remember it was really this was the yeah the individual field mapping right. Yeah, exactly. Let me put. Why can't I find it? Because um, of how much I've covered this have, week. <laughs> I must have somehow deleted it by accident. Let me. Well, we have the paper up. Yeah, we have the paper up. Um, anyways. Um, yeah, so um, he really explained very well uh, how they performed the 
data collection. Um, um, they basically had the uh, stimuli, uh, normalized images, samples from database of scenes, um, and um, they um, they then collected from a lot of lot of electrodes the neural data, um, whereby uh, the participants viewed the stimuli and um, the they they were recorded um, by like the they were they had 128 uh, eg channel recording and um, by um, different filtering processes and um, they did um, time resolved principal component analysis of these filters they basically um, were were um, able to do a quite specific image analysis um, that could map um, these specific um, channel inputs um, to uh, the this image specific analysis and reconstruct basically the image and what I think was really interesting about this work was how um, they looked for um, the time constant also. So basically they saw that um, the attention or basically what is being tracked um, in an image uh, varies over time uh, and it changes. And I think that is really important to know, um, especially also hopefully once he goes back and uh, looks into different um, mental health, um, like um, patients with different mental health disorders, uh, I would assume, and we discussed this, it's just a lot of work and getting more patients and more data and going through the data is really a lot of work, um, that I would assume that this could be a really good way to uh, check for different mental health disorders or maybe an onset of different neurodegenerative disorders that this uh, neural response over time and tracking an image is probably different in people with different disorders um, but there's still a lot of work to be done basically and uh, just the fact that he found this uh, and tracked this over time as, as really toward the force, how <laughs> Serena says his work was really interesting. <laughs> well, it was, because it, it was so interesting that um, there there was such a market time dependence on a, even on a pearl electrode basis. And it was, the, the time frame was over a quarter of a second, but when they showed images of where the even just the first principal component, and he said that explained most of the variance, um, was focused on. You know, sometimes it was fine detail, and other times it was the broader features, and that, um, and it was never. You know, it wasn't clear whether that reflected the. You know, uh, any kind of attentional ordering in the experience, or whether that was just being buffered. It's sort of a buffered up in the visual field that would be selectively filtered with attention later. 
But it was really fascinating how much um, time dependence there was in that in that data. It was uh, yeah, it looked like there's just a lot of a lot of stuff there to mine. Yep. Mm, if anyone has more, if not, we can move on to the next one. I really did something to my notes. I kind of jumbled them up. <laughs> I'm sorry that this is going. So the next room was our nuclear physics room. Um, let me put the link up. This was quite. Uh, oh, this was crazy. Quite... Yeah, I, I just blew my mind. <laughs> You want to go ahead and share? Well, so it was. Um, I, I did. I had no idea this was going on, and and uh, as it was a high energy uh, uh, particle physics experiment uh, or you know series, and um, from what I gathered, and I I was I was just really blown about how as you know as the energy of these protons are speeding up the gluons are just spraying everywhere and becoming uh, in this you know dense matrix of um, you know quarks and gluons and how uh, you know a, a treatment that doesn't involve entanglement failed to explain them and really the the, the emerging result was that uh, to, to get a handle on the entropy of this system and and I think you know he he was the author was so humble in in what he was he said the interior of protons but at the end he followed up with well yes and of course the rest of the universe works this way too <laughs> yeah you know it is proton is that that simple simplest form of matter but in terms of um, you know and at cold temperatures room temperatures I didn't get a chance to ask him um, what how you know how much of this is going on at room temperature chemistry or or body temperature but the um, just the fact that um, it become there's this all, all this stuff going on in a single particle which we think of as a single particle which isn't it's three quarks and a bunch of gluons especially as you accelerate them to higher energies so um, actually, capturing an, a formal expression for the entropy that is consistent with it being maximally entangled uh, it's just well, it's, it was mind-blowing because I mean I just as a chemist I normally think of you know well that's as far down as we dare to look and okay nuclear chemistry but we're not splitting atoms here so it's all quiet down there no 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 <laughs> all kinds of things going on um, you know, particularly at high energies. So um, it was just a fascinating. I, I was I was mostly speechless, but I wanted to ask him. Um, but I, I I feared the answer was just going to be that it it's it's not as important at the low energy, you know, that we we live in. Um, but it's still there. It's just it's still how nature works, and it was a uh, an amazing commentary on the universe. I thought. So, um, Serena, just to ask you, so when you cool down, I always, I don't know, I know that uh, people always say 
this might not be going on at our, you know, at room temperature or, you know, regular temperature and so on. But isn't it, I always ask myself, isn't it cooling down, just slowing down the process so we can observe it? Um, it at higher temperatures, it's not just not observable for us, maybe. Or is it really the case that it's not then going on? I, I don't see how. Like So so that's that wonderful quantum world uh, way down below. That, that yeah, it's, it's not uh, just slowing down. It's that there's the discrete energy levels that are no longer populated uh, without sufficient energy, or there, it just becomes lower and lower probability of ever having any population in the excited states. Um, and so, you know, when you get down to those low energy states that, that they just may not be populated there, if you excite them in any, in any sense, they're still there, they're available, but they're not populated or just populated much less probably. So in that case, uh, when he showed, he showed one of the diagrams of a, um, in a cold system or a low energy system, and there's like, you know, one or two gluons flying around. And then the high energy one, it's this whole gaseous density, dense, dense matrix of all kinds of crap flying everywhere. Um, so, but those are, those are quantized states. And uh, they're populated with a distribution depending on your energy. And so in those really cold um, states, and that's what I, I you know, I, I really wish, um, he, he sort of had to go all of a sudden, and so I didn't get my question in. But I, I was wondering, you know, yeah, how much, you know, at our, at our room temperatures, how much of this is going on? Because I don't think, what was what was so interesting to me is I don't think this is appreciated outside of nuclear physics at all. I mean, it says, what do you mean entropy inside a, a, a proton? What are you what are you talking about? And so, um, yeah, I I, um, I was thinking what between the proton and the electron, it's like no, he's talking about in the nucleus with the quarks and you know high energy stuff. So it was just really. It just blew my mind that, that there's all this stuff going on down there that may have little relevance to everyday chemistry, but it's it's just how nature works in higher energy situations. Um. Yeah, so what I loved about this was, um, I can just uh, read a quote that um, our study shows that the interior of a proton seen by a passing photon must be entangled with the unseen part in just this maximal manner. Um, in practice, this means that we have no chance of predicting whether due to interaction with the photon, the proton will decay into three, four, or any other numbers of particles. And what this means is that basically um, these um, experiment results the universe is non-deterministic. And I asked him specifically again, the, question, Does that that. Mean the universe is non-deterministic. He said, yes. So. Well, <laughs> and really you no latched onto that. that. There was another quote from a physicist that, that I remember that, um, you know, quantum mechanics will 
will predict that the probabilities are deterministic, but not the outcome, <laughs> which I thought was an interesting way of speaking to, you know, whether the universe or, you know, whether, you know, what, what did you, what did you call that? You had a great phrase of dork puppets, whether we're all dork puppets. <laughs> So quantum mechanics will predict probabilities are deterministic, but not actual outcomes. Very exciting work, yeah. Okay, so later we had on the same day a room about cancer research. And I know the title was a little bit, well, it's actually a title that he agreed on. So, um, so you know, he started the presentation with uh, that um, most people that smoke, uh, almost 80%, uh, this was thanking Huang from Albert Einstein um, uh, College here in New York City. And uh, most people that smoke actually don't get cancer. And he showed that smoking, of course, increases the rate of mutation. And what they did here was, and this is quite expensive to do, and... Uh, quite hard to do. Uh, they did single cell analysis of um, somatic mutations in bronchial epithelial cells. So they collect uh, from biopsies this, this tissue and then um, they had also control group from people that don't have uh, lung cancer. And so uh, and then they look at single cell um, mutations in in these um, lung cells and um, they found that people that smoke um, get have more mutations at some point actually with the time and the amount of smoking there's kind of a cap uh, at some point you don't get more mutations if you smoke more uh, but still there is a relatively high percentage of people, although you get this higher mutation rates, um, that don't get cancer. And um, this is basically just a beginning of um, this sort of study. Uh, what the goal is of this research, and I think it's it's a really interesting one that that I really like, is to see. What are basically, he, he didn't name it resilience, but what are basically the resilient mechanisms of these people that smoke but don't get cancer? And can we study that and leverage that? Um, and also at some point, um, he wants to also look at what smoking does to the germline and other um, cell types in the body. So. This is basically a start, a really great start to explain the methods. They also did some technology development and he will come back with his colleague 
um, maybe in the summer uh, to um, discuss the, um, the technology they developed to do this quite efficiently. Um, as, uh, because I think the technology itself is, is uh, really interesting. And, um, and yeah, so, so this is basically an ongoing research uh, to figure out, um, and I think it's a great model because uh, it's a really significant impact to smoke, right, uh, for years. Uh, and you could go into studying uh, people that live in cities versus people that don't live in cities, but not all the cities are have the same rate of pollution, not even living in the same city or exposed to the same level of pollution. So. I think using um, smoking versus non-smoking as a model here is is really um, it's a really good one to detect this protective cancer mechanisms in, in people that people have and then other people don't. So I think yeah, I think this will hopefully give us some data and maybe uh, treatment options or even preventive, like Jamie asked if he can basically develop um, a vaccine for cancer at some point based on the research. And uh, that would be really exciting, but it's still a little bit far off. And also they are looking into different tissues that they don't have to rely on biopsies because it makes it more difficult to have higher sample rates. Uh, so they could, uh, they are starting to look into blood and buccal swab um, tissue and see if they can basically uh, replicate this. So see the mutations also in these tissue samples. And if they can, uh, that will, you know, enable them to have higher rates and then look at subpopulations and, you know, have more granular data analysis because right now they don't have the statistical power to look into different lung cancer types, uh, different ages, um, male, female. They just don't have the, the statistical power yet to do so. But with going into those tissue samples, they, they could in the future. That's right. I remember asking that question and the fact that he did say that eventually that would be definitely an avenue that they would be going down. The idea that there even is a path like that baffles me that he's not being drowned in funding money. Considering the, the death rate of cancer patients and lung cancer um, just baffles me. But the idea that He's working on it, and even if it is early stages, an early stage is still a stage, and it's very exciting. So, um, very much a watch this space kind of situation. I was wondering, I couldn't, I couldn't tease out from the data whether or in the talk that whether he was saying that. Because he had, you know, he showed graphs that were very clear for never smokers. Um, you know, the slope was still positive with age. And you know, there was a very clear steep effect um, at, with with smoking. But the I was I was so, um, you know, preconditioned from the title, you know, why why don't smokers get cancer? Um, was was he saying or was his data supporting the notion that 
the um, the smoking exaggerated an effect in people that were predisposed to those mutations, or is it actually causing these mutations uh, in people that would not have, that weren't uh, weren't otherwise predisposed? I couldn't quite tell where that. Uh, I don't think he knows the mechanism yet. Uh, why people? Um the full mechanism yet so he just saw that people that smoke have more mutations also in cancer related um non-cancer related um, mutation signatures basically that correlate with smoking status and uh, were showed a stronger correlation but actually, the strongest correlation he showed was always um, chronological age. That still has the highest impact on, on this mutation signatures. Uh, so he compared smokers versus non-smokers, uh, if you look at the figures. And um, what the mechanisms are that protect them from getting cancer uh, I don't, they don't, they haven't uh, figured that out yet completely. So um, this was more like an analysis of the data, of the single cell analysis of these uh, somatic uh, mutations in relation to aging and smoking so far. Yeah, I'm always curious if is it, you know, is it just, is it, carcinogens from combustion products or um you know is it is it if you do a lot of grill cooking or are, are you also predisposed to those those effects uh is it anything pinned to nicotine in particular does vaping materialize in these these same effects you know i'm always curious about that i don't think nicotine itself should be Cancer. Yeah, I don't think it's labeled as a carcinogen. Yeah, mm. uh, it changes like memory and, and stuff like that. Um, you know, acetylcholine pathway it modulates it. But, um... but is there, I guess, I don't know if there's similar data on people that are around either campfires or grill cooking or, you know, other constant inhaling of um, combustion products. I suppose the coal miners have issues. Yeah, yeah, coal miners have issues that, yeah, so he chose this model basically, um, kind of a framework where he's developing this framework with smokers. Um, and for sure, people that work in coal mines or work, um, you know, a lot of with combustion, maybe even uh, working with as dentist, um, you know, you have a lot of those fumes from from all the, um, the glues and all the stuff, uh, maybe even hair salon, you know, they all have this. But um, I think he chose this model because just lung cancer is the most common cancer form and uh, smoking is, uh, you know, it's probably the more straightforward 
stressor that that probably you can use so and that people get asked in questionnaires right if you were a smoker or non-smoker there's no really medical questionnaire that asks you for if you grill a lot if you work in a hair salon and so sure. on sure Yeah, and then on Friday, we had um, the talk, a uh, BCI talk, a brain um, computer interface talk. Um, that was a group from Japan. They were really nice and um, uh, they were they're neurosurgeons and also uh, computational. So what they did was um, they had patients with epilepsy that have these, um, uh, basically this implants um, in the brain. And um, so how it looks like, I don't know if you can see the image here, the patients have this electrode pads that record from um, a lot of uh, cortical neurons. Um, and in this case, in the visual system, and uh, what they did is um, the patient was shown uh, on a screen uh, images, different images uh, here on the, the paper figure was, for example, a bear um, uh, out in nature or a dog. And um, <clears throat> they basically then related that imagery with the ECOG acquisition. So from this electron, electrode pad, the, the data acquisition and recorded the data and reconstructed it basically into visual semantic um, spaces um, with um, high, and they saw that um, you could record um, high gamma powers, but also um, alpha and beta and um, so basically they recorded that information and what they did next was um, they gave basically the patients the task to visualize something else while um, the patients were still uh, getting this visual cue from the screen. And this gave them basically a different uh, representation of the feedback images Mm, and um, they did that in a um, closed loop at uh, some point and basically the patients managed to increase the, um, the precision basically of that uh, visualized like inner eye uh, visualized image uh, signal to noise ratio and um, the biggest contributor of this top-down uh, control of the visual system was through the gamma band, uh, high gamma band, um, which was, I think, really interesting um, to see. And what this um, will lead to, hopefully, into the future as patients that have kind of locked-in syndrome or um, uh, ALS, and they cannot communicate anymore that you can basically um, uh, 
uh, translate um, through the through the inner imagery that people are having uh, into a signal that you can basically uh, read out and communicate with people that have, you know, a locked-in syndrome or ALS, um, so they cannot, you know, would not be able to communicate with you. But with this tool, they could. They can visualize something in their mind, and uh, you can basically display this on the screen for for people so i think it's really amazing <laughs> that they could do that they discussed that this is really in this type of precision only possible with um implanted so invasive with this invasive method um to get like their inner mind um uh, imagery uh, displayed um yeah so i think I think it's really interesting. Wow, I missed this one, I think. Um, but it's so they actually confirmed that if you are imagining something in your mind's eye, sort of, um, that that does actually activate corresponding visual cortex fields and, and that's readable. Yeah, mm -hmm, exactly. And then, oh my God. Uh, yeah, it were, and it's different from the imagery that you see on the screen. Uh, they could distinguish it. And with this feedback loop, uh, patients could basically increase the signal to noise ratio to display a more like a better and more precise image basically through their neural um, activity. So they could control it. It was really cool. Wow, so that's a that kind of resolves a long-standing question that when you imagine things, are you actually seeing them, or is that some other part of the brain that's holding the models of of what you're imagining? So it's actually we're just re, we are repurposing the visual cortex for that. Yeah, exactly. And there was a question. Um, I think Victoria asked it uh, if we can basically what does I think it was Victoria. What if people have um, this problem that they cannot really visualize something? You know, can you still use that technology? And they said they just don't know. They didn't have a patient with with that um, with that problem, so they don't know. They would have to test it. But um, yeah. Well, and does that work with the same in the visually impaired? Yeah, yeah, they, they, you know, they don't, basically, they don't know. Well, I don't know, they are visually impaired that can still have imagery. But I don't know, Jamie, what, what do you think? Um, uh, I'm thinking that the to see any data on this, uh, you probably have to see blind people with who never been able to see. Because uh, ultimately, if you've seen for a while, you still have the images in your head. If you obviously, if you don't have the that ability, that disorder to not imagine things like that, but um, I think it would be fascinating. Uh, I personally thinking about it would be leaning towards that it actually still would show up. I'm just wondering how was it you said that they map in? Like, how do you know if someone's thinking of? Uh, was it was it like again 
if you could think of an elephant, did you know? It was, did you know it was like an elephant or an animal, or was it simply that um, think yes and it went to one part of the brain, think no and it went to a different part? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, they told them uh, to have like a word, for example, imagine a word, imagine uh, a landscape, uh, you know, different things. Right, so they were calibrating that, right, in the same way that if, when people have done um, other tests in the past, you, you have to like calibrate it to what someone thinking. So in that case, I would actually lean towards the, uh, the visually impaired still could as long as they've got a concept but it would be really interesting if a blind person who was never could see um if that part of the, these parts of their brains would be activated and i really appreciate you asking that question uh, Serena. <laughs> well, well well it is yeah i mean you know if we're just if we are repurposing the visual cortex those visual fields um and you know and what yeah yeah that just that question how much imagery have you been conditioned do you remember uh was that where the neural pathways were trained or is there just something more fundamental that occurs in development that if you're going to imagine something you're going to re reuse that architecture and whether um i, I can remember studies in cats about um or kittens in terms of visual development and one's raised in dark or delayed delayed light and um there was uh i can't remember the solid conclusions but it the the mapping was a little noisier but it was the architecture was still you know there um how much it functioned was you know was a question of that so you know the it it remains an interesting question is that how you know, the visually impaired would imagine things, or if is, is it just a completely different remapping entirely? It definitely would open it up to so many other questions, like, in, like if that was possible, could um, could they then be, I don't know, taught other images? Like, could people that aren't blind or been blind since birth somehow interact with the world in a way that they could get these images? in the brain through other means or so just like like all of these guests all the time the exciting part isn't to find answers it's to find ways to more questions <laughs> all the good answers raise more questions absolutely yeah so that was this week it was a lot uh yeah, we learned a lot, discussed a lot. It was quite amazing. And the next week will be also really interesting again. Um, so um, we'll have tomorrow at 6 p.m. EST, uh, Dr. Lisbona, um, how sound, how she could use sound waves uh, to differentiate stem cells. Um, uh, she's from Australia, a researcher, so that will be really interesting. Then we'll have on Tuesday at 9 p.m. EST, um, Dr. Jim et al., like the group, um, will be coming and talking about 
quantum charging to shorten electric vehicle charging. Uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting paper, the technology they use. So I'm really excited to hear about that. And then on Wednesday, we'll have Dr. Timothy Brady again from Australia um, and how he could how he found that junk DNA could be actually the key to controlling fear. And then on Thursday, we have another human vision um, researcher, Bechli Vanidis, and um, how human vision uh, reconstructs time in different ways and, and, and how it changes. So uh, that's a really interesting paper too. And then uh, we'll have on Friday at 10 a.m. Dr. Kwasno Kutsky and how um, peptides, build, building blocks of, lime, of life form on space dust. So, um, yeah, that will... That's going to be interesting. Yeah, it's going to be good. Oh, yeah. They're all going to be good ones. I'm looking forward to one of them. Yeah, assuming everyone will show up. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I, as I said, I'm always nervous. I don't know why still, but um, yeah, I, I got confirmation from most of them. And so, yeah, I'll, I, I usually send out emails like a couple of days before again to remind everyone, but I met with, with everyone. So I guess, um, yeah, it will be happening and, uh, will be another exciting week. <laughs> Absolutely. Be there, Great. be square. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's hard for me to make the, uh, the nine to five on the East coast time slots, but I, I, some of the, I, I have to catch replays on some of them, but that's why I, I enjoy the recap because I know I missed some. But yeah, it does sound like an exciting week. Okay, enjoy the rest of your Sunday or wherever you are. Maybe it's already Monday. Um, so, and uh, yeah, hear you all back soon for another cool week with Science Society. Bye, everyone. Thank Thanks you. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Bye, Serena. Bye, Bye. Katrina. Bye. Bye. Sorry, I just left without closing the room. I'm so sorry. Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs>